2: The nation magazine this is start making sense political talk without the boring parts i'm john Weiner. today we'll talk about trump's place in american history with jill lapore of the harvard history department and the new yorker and we'll recall the 1968 presidential election when richard nixon won and many of our current problems began the man who almost defeated nixon was hubert humphrey Those of us who were activists in 1968 hated Hubert Humphrey. Michael Kazin will explain. But first, we have a problem with white men. They support Donald Trump. 62% of white men voted for Trump, 31% for Clinton. But recently we've seen some powerful challenges to the power of white men. For comment, we turn to Kai Wright. He's host of WNYC's terrific podcast, The United States of Anxiety. It's now in its third season, and he's head of WNYC's narrative unit. He's also a columnist for The Nation. Kai Wright, welcome back.
3: Thanks for having me.
2: Well, we're told that the partisan divide has never been so bitter. That's the divide, we are told, between conservatives and liberals. You think we need to be honest about the real divide in America, the deepest and most significant one.
3: What is it? Well, it is a divide based on race and gender, or, you know, put differently, a divide based on those of us who are interested in a plural society and those who are invested in the minority rule of white men. And that has been true really throughout the history of our country. Um, It has been most profoundly perhaps true since, you know, the Republican, since the Civil Rights Movement, when the Republican Party decided that, as we now well know, decided to build its base on a reaction to the Civil Rights Movement to, in its Southern strategy. And so for decades, we've sort of taken for granted the way the parties are raced, you know, that, well, you know, Black people, they vote for Democrats, you know, and then white people, we'll see which way they go. But what we have seen in the years since, you know, since that Southern strategy launched is one, is is two things. One, the parties are increasingly gendered as well. That began in 1980 uh, with Reagan and has really uh, taken off now with under Trump. But the, the parties are increasingly divided by gender as well as race. And they are increasingly divided by people who very explicitly have decided, okay, I am comfortable with a white male majority. That's what the Republican Party is pursuing. And people who have said, I'm not comfortable with that. And our refusal to sort of be honest about that conversation to dress it up and all kinds of other stuff, which isn't to say we don't have meaningful policy differences, but it's very difficult to have a conversation about those meaningful policy differences because underneath all of them is always this debate about pluralism where we're talking about immigration, where they're talking about healthcare, where we're talking about economic stimulus each time we actually get caught up on this divide. So it's high time that we just name that divide so that we can then start to deal with all of the other questions that we have to deal with as a nation.
2: Are there any recent examples of white male power that you'd like to remind us about?
3: Well, I mean, see under the presidency of Donald Trump. But
2: for example.
3: The, you know, for example. But I mean, you know, what I wrote in response to was, the, was of course, Brett Kavanaugh's hearings. And I think what you saw there was really a quite a performance of what I'm talking about, you know I mean, when it became clear that republicans needed a needed a villain of some sort, um they needed something uh, to hang their hat on, and it couldn't be an attack on christine blasey ford and And so what they did was just perform this this dramatic rage, you know, of white men. And, you know, and Lindsey Graham was was the standout performer in this when, you know, when he declares... Uh, on the, the the second day of of testimony, the morning after our Kavanaugh's testimony, and he opens the hearings declaring, you know, I am a, a single white man from South Carolina and I've been told to shut up, but I will not shut up. You know, <laughs> right. he goes on to wax nostalgic about the days when Joe Biden and Strom Thurmond could hang out despite their divide. Strom Thurmond, who was a avowed white supremacist, by the way, and and really what he's waxing nostalgic about at that moment is a time when the Senate was entirely white men.
2: In your recent column for The Nation, which was headlined, White Men Have Good Reason to be Scared, you got a, I guess it's fair to call it a firestorm of of response to it. I just <laughs> want to ask you about some of the comments posted at The Nation and in the on Twitter. One person responded, you have the dead white patriarchy's forefathers to thank for all the freedoms and prosperity <laughs> that you enjoy.
3: What do you think about that? I mean, where do you even begin? I, you know, I, I, I honestly just do not take the stuff seriously, and this is why. Again, we have to become honest about the divide we're in. There are those who would say, "Oh, you know," and in and a, a tone of a number of the sort of less hysterical responses than that one, are you know in in the in the vein of, "Well, you know, you've got to persuade people. You can't, you know, what are, you're turning away white men right now by with this kind of talk." Well you know what I, th- there is just a, a significant hunk of the country that is not going to be persuaded that is not going to be persuaded that a lib- that that a that, that a plural society is good for them for whatever reason those individuals have decided that they are committed to white male minority rule so the rest of us who are not committed to that need to get out of the game of persuasion and into acknowledging the fight we're in and building power so that we can be in charge. And, uh, and, and, the, and the good news is that we are in the comfortable majority. It is a small minority of very loud but very powerful people who, who believe that we should continue to organize our society and our politics around this minority. Their, their rage in response to, a, to, to uprisings just reveals their weakness. I mean, as there's a saying they have in the South, a hit dog will holler, and and that is kind of how I take a lot of the response to this column. A hit dog will holler. They, I they, you, I have put my finger on it, and those who are invested in this power are scared to see it go. But you know what? It it it's gonna go. <laughs> it, it is going to go.
2: Well, let me pursue that just for a minute longer. Uh, there was a a much longer response at, at USA Today that sort of laid out the case that. Millions of white men have been whiplashed by economic changes. Uh, White men's wages adjusted for inflation are slightly lower today than they were in 1973. Nearly one-third of uh, white uh, male adults are not working. White men's life expectancy has been declining. White men account for the majority of deaths from opioid abuse. White men, especially younger working class white men, have needs for, you know, jobs, decent wages and health care. And it would be a mistake for progressive liberals, for liberals to uh, to write them off.
3: Well, no one's at no one's saying write them off (laughs) as part of society. First off, the the economic and social picture that you just des- described is not just relevant to white men. It's relevant to all of us. That is true across our economy. We have it, absolutely, we, our you know, wages have not gone up. Many of us are in debt traps. Our We work two and three jobs in order to make the same amount of money as we once did. We, the social safety net is shredded. The, I mean, on and on and on. Yeah, sure. The Problem is we can't get to resolving those issues because when we try to have genuine conversations about it, one part, one small part of our political political leadership turns to race baiting, tells us, well, it's about immigration, lies, and says that these your problems are due to brown people coming across the border right now. All the things that we could be debating heading into the midterm elections, the president has decided that the that the lead question that he's going to bring up is the fact that there are migrants headed. There's a, a large group of migrants headed through from Central America through Mexico right now, and that they're storming our borders. And that is that he's so he's not talking about the the, the helping the the white man that that you just described. He's not talking about bringing any relief to any of those things. He's talking about you should hate these immigrants. And so then we're not in a conversation about solving the problems, economic problems that all of us have because of racism. And and, and that works because a small minority uh, of white men uh, have responded strongly to it. And so I, I think it is time for progressives to say, hey, hey, you know what? We are building strength. And we are we are building political strength and social strength and cultural strength, uh, and and we're going to make the country a, d- a different kind of place, and it's going to be good for you just like it is for us, and and and, it, and we may have to take you along kicking and screaming, but that's what's going to happen.
2: There's one other response in the Nation comment uh, stream that I wanted to get your response to. They. This person said, you know, have you forgotten that Hillary Clinton, Nancy Pelosi, Dianne Feinstein are willing to do the dirty work of those who actually rule? And it's been the case with Obama, with Eric Holder, with John Lewis, crony capitalists and war criminals all. What do you say to that comment?
3: Well, look, I, you know, I have, uh, there is plenty of critique to be made of the Democratic Party, absolutely. You know, I don't know that I would agree with all of that, but there are, I have many, many complaints <laughs> about uh, Barack Obama's presidency, uh, including the war crimes that uh, took place in the course of it. So there's no question that, uh, that being a Democrat does not, does, does not make you good for the country. My point is that nonetheless, the parties have very much been sorted by race and gender they just have and and not just race and gender in terms of the identity of the people involved but race and gender in terms of how how those of us who feel comfortable with a plural America and those of us who do not that, that that is our that is our most profound divide right now let's deal with that so that we can turn around and start saying well what is the right way to 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 fund healthcare what is the right way to get corporations out of our politics what is the right way uh, to to promote peace in the world we we we, we can't get to these conversations because we're always bogged down in in the racism and the misogyny that we don't name
2: it's time for an honest and real debate Kai Wright you can read his column white men have good reason to be scared at thenation.com. thank you Kai it's great to have you on the show
3: thank you
4: Support for Start Making Sense comes from Swing Left. We've said it here many times. It all starts with the House. If progressive candidates win in just 23 swing districts on November 6th, we can take back a majority in the House of Representatives and finally put a check on Donald Trump and the people in power who are supporting him. That's why nearly half a million people have signed up to volunteer with Swing Left. When you join Swing Left at swingleft.org sense, You'll be connected immediately with other volunteers in your area who are working to win the races in a nearby swing district. You'll find out where and how you can make the most impact. We can flip the house. It's really that simple. Each of us has the power to change our country and save our democracy, but only if we do the work to take back the house. So don't just vote this year. Volunteer. Join the grassroots movement that's changing things in this year's midterm elections. Sign up now at swingleft.org backslash sense. That's S-E-N-S E. -E.
2: Next up, the history of the United States from the beginning to now, from 1492 and Christopher Columbus down to 2016 and Donald Trump, that big story is told in Jill Lepore's big new book. It's called These Truths. Jill Lepore is a professor of history at Harvard. She's also a staff writer for The New Yorker. Her last book was a bestseller, The Secret History of Wonder Woman. We reached her today at Harvard. Jill Lepore, welcome.
5: Hey, thanks so much for having me.
2: Well, your new 900-page history of America ends with Donald Trump. This is a story with an ending, and it's not a happy one. When you were writing this book, what did you think the last chapter would be about? Where did you think the story would end?
5: When I set about to write the book, which was a few years ago, I initially thought I'd end it in 2009, actually on Inauguration Day of 2009, with the inauguration of Barack Obama. It's a great ending. It's very cinematic. It has all kinds of drama to it. It hits a lot of themes in American history, the struggle over equality, the long uh, fight for racial justice in the united states. it's a it's a moment of political celebration. Uh, there were all kinds of great reasons to end on inauguration day two thousand and nine, one of which was that it was comfortably in the past. You know, historians don't generally like to write about the present or the near present because we have insufficient vantage on it. It just never occurred to me that I would want to Go all the way up to the 2016 election, not really because of who was running, but just because it was too recent of, of an election to try to make sense of. But I was about halfway through writing the book. I was around the Civil War era when Donald Trump defeated Hillary Clinton in November of 2016. And then I realized, I mean, you know, pretty much immediately that I would need to add, I need to adjust my ending that seemed like a dereliction of duty as an intellectual to not attempt to attempt to wrestle with it. And even in the qualified terms in which I did attempt to wrestle with it.
2: The history that ends with the election of our first black president is very different from the history that ends with Donald Trump. Or or is it? Did you revise? Did you take out some Martin Luther King and add more George Wallace after Trump got elected?
5: No, I didn't. I think what happens though is the book reads a little bit differently. Like maybe the readers are, maybe the words of George Wallace sleep out on the page, and the words of, of, of Martin Luther King maybe don't so much, or they don't seem to be foreshadowing. You remember, it was a close election, and Donald Trump uh, didn't win the popular vote. It certainly could have gone another way. So it doesn't it doesn't actually represent the upending that I think the panic about the election elicited. It is a completely different political direction for the country to go. And there's just no two ways about that. But it is the same country that elected both of those people.
2: American historians now are supposed to be able to answer the question, how bad is Donald Trump compared to all the rest? Is he really the worst? How badly have presidents behaved in the past? We need to have some sense of what is politics as, as usual, historically speaking. This is a question that you've looked into.
5: I was sort of fascinated recently, this is long after I finished writing this book, to discover that the Watergate Commission had actually invited the Yale, great Yale historian, Steve Ann Woodward, in 1974 to compile a report for the purpose of the Watergate Commission that tried to answer the question with actual proper historical method has any president done the kinds of things that Nixon stands accused of having done? And the reason that they wanted that report was. There are plenty of Republicans on the the Watergate Judiciary Committee, who the Judiciary Committee that was conducting the inquiry, that kept saying, "You know what? You know it's it's true. A lot of crap has come out about Nixon, but you know, probably every president did this kind of stuff, and we just don't don't know about it. You know, I think this might just be politics as usual. How you know? And the Democrats who were interested in pursuing impeachment wanted to answer that objection, but they they thought that they would find evidence to support their contention that this wasn't politics as usual. In any case, Woodward, a public-minded historian of the sort that there really aren't very many anymore, given that he had a great deal of academic authority, whereas at the moment now, a lot of the people who appear in public as historians are not people of great academic authority. Woodward was of a different kind of a different kind of guy he got together some colleagues and they got together their graduate students and they in a whirlwind summer there are great stories told about the work of doing this <laughs> i had to compile a report on every single american president it was basically a litany of presidential misdeeds and how they were handled and uh, they got their report in but by that time nixon had all but resigned and then shortly after resigned and so the the report had no impact whatsoever on the proceedings and very quickly went out of print. But it was uh, really fun to go read it. It's actually fascinating reading. It's a great report. It's really interesting. But I tracked down of the historians who had worked on the project. I think I talked to, in the end, I talked to everybody who's still alive. Wow. And I asked them, you know, to compare what they had learned about the previous presidential administrations and the, the low watermark that, Nixon represented, which was Woodward's final conclusion in the introduction that he wrote to the report. you know he said like there's been a lot of misdeeds there's a lot of corruption and there's been a lot of graft, there's a lot of lying. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of chicanery but of the specific kinds of abdication of the Constitution that Nixon's sins represented. Woodward, you know, had many a long list of ways in which these things were unprecedented. But of the historians I, I that I spoke to who you know wanted to talk about Trump, uh, I guess this is a very long-winded answer to your question. Has you know, has any president been as bad as Trump? I mean, I, I, they had strong words about about Trump, an unprecedented nature of what's sort of strangely not just what Trump stands accused of, much of which you know are really mere accusations, the allegations of collusion with the Russians, for instance, but those sort of public defilement of democratic institutions and foundational American values. So less kind of constitutional violations than this kind of larger scope of, you know, debasement really is is, is the term that comes to mind in thinking about things that specific historians said to me.
2: I wanted to ask about Andrew Sullivan's review of your book in the New York Times. He said he he concluded from your book that, quote, the civil war would never end merely wax and wane and its toll on the human spirit. And the black body was matched only by its evil from Jackson's massacre of native Americans to the Southern labor camps, to the full embrace of torture in the Bush Cheney administration is a single consistent and evil line. Close quote, Andrew Sullivan. I wonder if you have any comment on that.
5: I think that's the first I've heard that I I just as a rule don't read reviews. A lot of people have written to me about Sullivan's review, so I'm I'm awfully familiar with it. I don't know that I know that passage and I of course can't be accountable for what someone says right. <laughs> about my work. Right. Um I that is a that is a powerful statement. I think to some degree that is Yeah, Sullivan's a tremendously talented writer, and I think to some degree that is a claim of his own. I spent a lot of time in the book talking about how the work of the historian is not the same as the work of a moralist. I think there's a lot of room for moralism in our political rhetoric and and even in our political journalism, and and I think Sullivan isn't in any ways in the best tradition of that, and I, I talk a lot about actually that vein of American political journalism as a really important part of how the American Republic works and the check that, that journalists play on, on government overreach and, and on corporations as well. I myself don't use the language of evil in that regard. I use the language of tragedy and horror, uh, which is a slightly different language than what, what Sullivan is employing there. Whether whether the way that I construct my story, is, which is the way that I see American history playing out, offers sources of continuity, where tragedies come back and back and back. I I think that's completely fairly stated.
2: Jill Lepore's new book is These Truths. It's on the New York Times bestseller list. It's beautifully written. Jill, thanks so much for talking with us today.
5: Hey, thanks a lot for having me. It was a lot of fun.
2: Time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Today, Hubert Humphrey, the man from Minnesota who almost defeated Richard Nixon for president in 1968. For that, we turn to Michael Kazin. He teaches history at Georgetown. His latest book is War Against War The American Fight for Peace, 1914 to 1918. He's the co editor of Dissent Magazine and a contributor to The Nation. Michael Kazin, welcome back.
6: Uh, Great to be here, John.
2: Well, for people like us who grew up in the 60s, Hubert Humphrey was a crucial representative of everything that was wrong in
6: America. Well, I was 20 years old in 1968 when he ran for president, and I really hated him back then. He was the representative of everything I thought was rotten about American politics. Uh, He'd been a a great domestic liberal, but then when he became vice president with, with uh, Lyndon Johnson in 1964, he became uh, the most high-profile cheerleader in the party for the Vietnam War, which I thought and I still think was an abomination which killed millions of people and uh, in many ways helped to bring on the conservative era in American politics that we're still immersed in.
2: When I was a kid growing up in Minnesota, Hubert Humphrey was a liberal hero. We were all told about how in Nineteen forty-eight at the Democratic National Convention, he had confronted the segregationists in the party. Remind us what that was about.
6: Well, in forty-eight, uh, the Democratic Party was finally, after more than a hundred years of its history as a party defending slavery and then segregation, Democratic Party was finally seeing the light, and a uh, uh, majority of. of, of uh, Democrats in the North, uh, at least, were uh, supportive of a civil rights bill. And Humphrey, who was then mayor of Minneapolis, gave a really bravurous speech uh, at the Democratic Convention that year in which he defended uh, a civil rights plank in that platform. And uh, the plank passed. And in response, some Dixiecrats walked out of the convention and founded the States Rights Party, uh, which was dedicated to keeping the Jim Crow order uh, intact. And uh, so he was... He was a hero not just of uh, New Deal and later on uh, uh, New Frontier Great Society programs, but also uh, he was one of the first white Democrats um, to really take a stand for civil rights, uh, to put the party on record being for civil rights legislation instead of opposed to it, as it had been throughout most of its history.
2: And then he served 16 years in the Senate. He called himself a liberal without apology. Of course, this was also the era of McCarthyism. How did he do in the era of McCarthyism?
6: Well, (laughs) on the one hand, he was a New Deal liberal, and he did want to sort of revive uh, New Deal liberalism and uh, support really uh, robust social programs to help the poor, uh, to strengthen labor unions. And yet he also wanted to run for president, and this was the Cold War, and he was very aware that that anybody who was considered to be soft on communism, as the phrase had it, would have a very hard time getting elected. So in 1954, at the height of McCarthyism, he sponsored a bill called the Communist Control Act, which actually outlawed membership of the Communist Party, which uh, civil libertarian, uh, some conservative uh, uh, lawyers, as well as the liberal ones, said, hey, that's against the Bill of Rights. <laughs> that's against the First Amendment. You can't tell people they can't join an organization. Uh, but Hoffman got away with it, even though this act was really never uh, enforced, um, because it would have been too embarrassing to try to enforce it, I think. In
2: 1964... He ran as the vice presidential candidate when LBJ was running for president. What did it take for Hubert Humphrey to get to be vice president in 1964?
6: Well, essentially, Johnson was was holding a kind of uh, tryout. For possible vice presidents, and he was pretty clear he'd probably win the election. and He was way ahead in the polls of Barry Goldwater, who was the uh, very conservative Republican candidate for president that year. So, and one of the one of the things Humphrey had to do for this trial was to show that he could uh, carry out the president's wishes. And uh, this, at the at 1964 at the Democratic convention in Atlantic City, this put him uh, at odds with the Black Freedom Movement uh, at the time, the grassroots Black Freedom Movement, especially. Uh, there was a group called the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, which uh, civil rights workers, both black and white, had put together in Mississippi to challenge the all-white segregationist delegation of the regular Mississippi Democratic Party, uh, which was sending its delegates to the Democratic Convention in Atlantic City that year and was opposed to the Civil Rights Act, which which uh, just a month before the convention, uh, President uh, Johnson had already had signed. But Johnson, who was a as um, aggressive uh, as, in, as he was insecure, as insecure as he was aggressive, uh, wanted to in every state, uh, and that included southern states, and he was very afraid that if the um, uh, Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party uh, had been able to install its delegates, uh, black and white delegates, in the place of the regular Mississippi Democratic Party. The Mississippi Democratic Party would walk out of the convention, and uh, he would lose Mississippi, not just Mississippi, but also uh, other deep southern states where black people, for the most part, could not, could not yet vote. And so Johnson uh, asked, really commanded Humphrey to go to the MFDP, um, which had sent People up to Atlantic City from the South, uh, hoping to be seated in the convention, telling them basically, will you accept a compromise where they would get two symbolic seats, uh, but they would not be able to sit on the floor of the convention? and. These people from Mississippi who've been, uh, some of them uh, had seen their friends killed, they've been in jail, they've been beaten up in this very crucial bloody struggle in the South for civil rights. They they hadn't come up to Atlantic City to accept two damn seats, which is how Fannie Lou Hamer, one of the charismatic leaders of the MFDP, put it. So they refused to accept this uh, compromise that Humphrey had worked out, and, and they left the convention. And... Uh, this was enough to convince Johnson that that Humphrey would, as Johnson, as Humphrey letter put it, uh, would, would eat his shit and like it. He was so desperate was Humphrey to get nominated vice president, he was willing to basically sell off the civil rights movement.
2: After 1964 is when we have the tremendous escalation of the war in Vietnam. At the time, you and I and our friends blamed liberals for the war in Vietnam.
6: Were we right about that? Mostly, I think we were. I'm afraid, yes, because these were Cold War liberals, after all. These were people who, beginning with uh, Harry Truman, late 1940s, on through John Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson, had supported a foreign policy which I think its ideals were uh, not bad. I think communism uh, was uh, undemocratic and tyrannical and had to be opposed, but. But the way in which Liberal Democrats, when they were in power, wanted to oppose it and tried to oppose it was through force of arms, by building a network of bases all around the world, by setting up our own free world empire uh, to go against the Soviet empire, and um, and the war in Vietnam was seen as just one front in that battle uh, against communism. When in fact, uh, what was happening in Vietnam, uh, as many listeners probably know. Really, it was part of a struggle for Vietnamese independence, which uh, communist led forces were, were leading. Then came 1968.
2: LBJ, of course, withdrew from his own reelection campaign after nearly losing the first primary to another man from Minnesota. Senator Eugene McCarthy. Humphrey became the candidate of the party establishment, even though he didn't enter a single primary that year. I didn't know anything about the Democrats' platform in 1968 until I read your piece in The Nation. What was that like?
6: Well, it was a very progressive platform. Uh, You might say it was a social democratic platform, a platform that today's Democrats, people like uh, progressive Democrats, someone like Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders might be uh, happy to run on. Included a, uh, a pledge to cover all Americans with health insurance, to uh, try to get housing for all Americans, to make sure there was nutritious food uh, for all Americans, and um, he called for a Marshall Plan for the cities. Uh, there have been these rebellions or riots in the cities from uh, 1965 to 1968 in black neighborhoods, especially, and uh, he called for a Marshall Plan to give people jobs, to um, give them housing. So it was it would have created if it been if the platform had been um, uh, acted upon, uh, it would have created a uh, a welfare state, you know, not so different from ones uh, that now exist in the place like Scandinavia. But it was really overshadowed entirely, of course, by the argument about the war in Vietnam. So most people never really knew it existed. The question that we had
2: to ask at that time and that we have to ask again today is even though Humphrey was a key cheerleader for that atrocity in Indochina, should we have supported him for president to keep Nixon? From becoming president, I remember my father, also from Minnesota, argued, you have to vote for Humphrey, if only to save the Supreme Court. I know at the time, you and I refused to support Humphrey. What does it look like now, 50 years later?
6: Well, you know, uh, as I say, retrospect is 2020. I think it would have been better, yes, if we had urged people to hold their noses and vote for Humphrey. But again... As historians, which you and I both are, we understand that, you know, you have to, you have to understand people's choices in context. And the context at the time was, was, this guy for four years had been defending this awful policy. How could we ask people to support that?
2: Michael Kazin, he wrote about Hubert Humphrey for The Nation's Fall Book Issue. You can read him at thenation.com. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, John. Finally, a word about this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast. Of course, that's our sister podcast at The Nation. This week, Dave says the NCAA is gaslighting you on compensation for college players. It's time for college athletes to receive some of the financial benefits they generate. That's this week on the Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. Tune in every Tuesday... Atthenation.com. Start making sense. The Nation podcast is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood. With technical assistance from Justin Allen, our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts.
0: This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming...